0: to the proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person, Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at Admin at New So, first
1: of all, who knows what made? Who knows what made stands for? Yell it out. I'm not going to call them. Medical assistance in dying. Now do you think you have to kill somebody in order to do that? To assist somebody with their dying you have to kill them. You think maybe in palliative care I've been doing that for 35 years, and I've never killed anybody? So this is a euphemism. All right medical assistance in dying is not what it is, but the it's it's all part of this um, the engineering of the language And in fact, we had a a continuing medical education session about, it was even just called euthanasia, um, uh, the psychological effects or the psychiatric effects of euthanasia. And we were not able to get continuing medical education credit for that unless we called it MAID instead of euthanasia. And so, who knows what euthanasia means? If you studied a little Greek, what does that mean? What does you mean, E-U? You know what that means? U means good. Okay. And Thanos is death. So euthanasia just basically means a good, yeah, <laughs> a good death. All right. So I refuse to call it that as well. I go with what the Dutch call it. And if I'm out in public or I'm talking to a member of parliament or something like that, I will talk about made. And if we're talking about it in, you know, in the public forum but what i call it is what the dutch do and that's medical termination because that's what it is that's really what it is and so um who knows how it's done just basically what happens when somebody has made medical termination here in canada yeah it's an injection it's a lethal injection and they do they do some stuff to kind of put the person to sleep a little bit, and then they give the medications to stop the heart. So it's, it's a lethal injection. Um, assisted suicide, it's a form of assisted suicide, but there's a little bit of a fine distinction in that assisted suicide often means that the, the person has to have some agency in it. So in every place in the United States where they have assisted suicide, the person has to take the pills, technically supposed to you know there's there's no oversight so you know they could flush somebody could flush the pills down the toilet and smother you once you've got the pills in your house but technically the idea is that you have to make a choice to do this and it's very interesting that the difference in places where we have only assisted suicide where the where the person has some agency and where there's where there is medical termination with the lethal injection. In places where, the, where there's some agency of the individual, the, um, although, for, for example, Oregon, where the, it became legal around the end of the 19, 1990s, it's, there's a, a few different dates, but basically the end of the 90s, and they are now, they, they started out with um, 0.2 to 0.3% of all deaths, and now they're up to like 0.5, so half a percent in, you know, close to a quarter of a century. In Canada, we are coming up to our seventh anniversary of this being legal. And in British Columbia, we have an average of 1 in 20 deaths, so 5%, 10 times that. And on Vancouver Island, it's 7.5% that's the epicenter of everything. So um, California has about the same population that all of Canada does and last year with their assisted suicide they ended up having two or three hundred people who died and we had over 10,000 so this is showing you that what the way that it's been sold to Canadians is that it's just another medical treatment and this idea that somehow we had to change the criminal code so that a doctor or a nurse practitioner taking the life of a patient was no longer considered murder should tell you something okay so it came out of the criminal code came into that, and then everything just kind of blew up to the fact that oh well it 's just another medical treatment it 's just a treatment if you it 's just kind of the, the ongoing uh, the ongoing treatment so if um, that's what we need to think about tonight is what's why are we doing this so l- I, I want you to start thinking about what are some of the reasons why somebody might what might want to have that just start yelling them out I'll put them on the board depression, depression. okay why else okay pain what well yeah okay so suffering we'll just put that down there that they're suffering because not everybody who has a terminal illness is suffering but let's just say they're suffering in some way and it could be physical or it could be psychological could be spiritual lots of different ways okay so why else okay you've been reading Okay, so finance, <laughs> yeah, no, but this is, these are some of the reasons why people are asking for it now here in Canada, that they can't find a place to live, that um, all these other things, what else, why, are, why else would people want to have this? Pardon my writing, I'm not good on the board. Um, okay, what's involved with, with this kind of stuff here? What are they saying when they say that? What does dignity mean? All right. So it's, we would call that the activities of daily living. All right. That they can't, they can't do that anymore. Okay. What else? Beyond this. This is super important. I know I'm kind of pulling teeth and it's a guess what I'm thinking question, but you need to really think about why people would ask for this. Well, I don't call it that, but why they would ask for medical termination. (laughs) Okay, all right, so this is actually the number one reason why people ask for it. Okay, that's the number one reason they ask. Pain, in Oregon, they had to say pain or fear of future pain before it even registered because. Now, and somebody once said, now when we have the best palliative care we've ever had, the best pain control, we've ever had the best symptom control, why is it that people are just so all fired wanting to die? Well, it has to do with this illusion of control. And, you know, I I doubt that there's very many people in the middle of Ukraine right now who are looking for this or people who are starving in Africa who are looking for this, even though there may be suffering there, because they don't have this illusion of control that we have here. So what we hear people saying is that and and the suffering kind of comes in here more in the existential side of suffering. They'll say things I had a patient say to me, well, there's just no joy anymore and you know this person had was in a lovely home beautiful bedroom didn't have symptoms just didn't have joy anymore and 15 years ago we would have said well how can we help you find joy how can we how can we reimagine hope how can we reframe hope for you but now if you stand in the way of that at all you're set you're you're being told that you're getting in the way of somebody's right to have the state kill them. So the, the number one reason that people are asking for this is, has to do with control. It has to do with not being able to take care of themselves, as one person said, and it has to do with not being able to do those things that they that they wanted to do with their life. It, it's not and sometimes that leads to depression, Sometimes there is there is some long-term pain. There is suffering there, but there more and more. There's we've we've euthanized uh, we've we've terminated a woman who had um, lots of allergies. Uh, uh, She couldn't be around perfumes and all of those environmental uh, triggers, and she didn't have enough money. She had to live in in uh, uh, housing that was government uh, subsidized, and they couldn't find a place for her. So she asked for MAID and got it because of that, because of environmental things. There were um, veterans who were suffering from PTSD, you probably read about them, were offered, were offered MAID instead of uh, a support, people who had given a lot for our country. So it's it's really, this whole thing that it's sold to us by People saying, oh, it's just for this small number of people who are, are really suffering with, with something. And the other piece that nobody said, but that is in the original Supreme Court decision, is this, disability. OK, so what does this say about us? If we approve suicide or termination for people living with a disability, whether it's one that you've had from the time you were little, or whether it's one that comes as a result of an illness. But we say, okay, you know, if you're 25 and, and your, your girlfriend just dumped you, we're gonna prevent your suicide. But if you have a disability, well then we can understand why, why you might wanna die. So the way that the Supreme Court decision came down, it was pretty wide open. It said it should be available for anyone who has a serious grievous and serious, um, irremediable, which means it's not fixable, medical condition or disability that's not amenable to a treatment, okay? That's acceptable to the patient, okay? And that causes intolerable suffering as defined by the patient. So it's all very subjective. And as soon as, when, when, the, when the law was written in, it said, well, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybo was the, um, the uh, Attorney General at that time, and she, having a First Nations background, understood that suicide is very contagious, and so she put in this part about needing to be reasonably foreseeable, and people immediately challenged that. They won in the lower courts in Quebec, after parliament had been prorogued for an election and the Trudeau government didn't, didn't, um, didn't appeal it and the opposition parties could do nothing and so now that was why from 2016 we now have a law that says that, um, that you don't have to have uh, reasonably foreseeable and in fact when the 2016 law came in they took out so you know, how, how long do you have to wait after you say, you know, I'd really like to be dead, how long, what's the waiting period? Yeah, it's, it's you don't don't have, there's no waiting period. Um, If you could get two people to do the assessments right at the time, you could be dead at that point. If your death is reasonably foreseeable, which of ours isn't, but I mean in their definition kind of of it, if you had pancreatic cancer, you could go to the doctor in the morning, and if you could get the paperwork done, <clears throat> you, could be, you could never have to come home again. You could just be dead. And there's, if you didn't want your family to know, they wouldn't have to know until they were told you were dead. And um, if you have something that is like diabetes, or rheumatoid arthritis, or something like that, that are chronic kidney disease, where it's not gonna kill you, in a reasonably foreseeable time, you only have to wait 90 days. And we've just, they've just put this one off for, for a year, but basically it can take up to two years to get into specialized treatment for some of these uh, psychiatric issues, but you can be dead in 90 days. And the same thing with other things. I mean, I had to have a GI consult one time, I waited 10 months, you know. So if you, but you can be dead in 90 days if you have something that's uh, not reasonably foreseeable. And the, the people who are in the Dying with Dignity folks, they, they recruit doctors who, to whom they can send the patients who will say, yes, this is grievous and irremediable, and this person has been informed of all the possible choices and has chosen not to use it. Okay, so this is kind of what we're looking at here. It, and the, the interesting thing about the Supreme Court decision And this is how weird this is. So here's here's where we are today with this patient. And she's got, it was Gloria Taylor. And she says, you know, I want to be dead if I get to this point. But I'm going to lose the ability to kill myself at this point. So what I want is I want to be able to live this amount of time and then have the government kill me at this time okay and, and the court agreed with her and said that by not doing this it was it, w- it was against her right to life I'm not making this up because it was this potential little bit of life that she was missing so that they used the right to life to say that the government had to make arrangements to kill her okay so it's, it's very crazy, but that's, that's kind of where we are with this. Okay, so this is the Kool-Aid that your neighbors are drinking right now. And this is the Kool-Aid that the CBC and most of the major media outlets are peddling as well, is that this is a societal good that we're doing this. Okay, so let's look at this term dignity a little bit. So is dignity something you can lose or is it something inherent? Okay, where does it come from? Okay, so this is about the only place where you, where you absolutely have to use your Christian faith to say it out loud. <laughs> you know, I, I'm careful when I am out in public to say things like respect for every member of the human family rather than the sanctity of life. Because what happens, if you've seen those roll shutters that people have, to, that's just what happens. you know. As soon as you say any of those words, and I, I wanna be a little bit like Paul on Mars Hill where I'm gonna say things so that people will be able to hear what I'm saying. I'm not watering down my message in any way, I'm just trying to make it uh, speak in their language a little bit, okay? so. This is one thing, if somebody says I want to die with dignity, what does that actually mean? Um, Dr. Harvey Max Czachanoff did a, a whole study of this because he started noticing that that's what people were saying when they were uh, in Holland, in the Netherlands, they were saying well I want to die with dignity and it all had this thing about dignity. So he's got all this research, he's from the wonderful Jewish man from the um, Manitoba, and he's got a whole bunch of research about dignity conserving care. That's another whole topic I talk about, but I won't I won't go there today. I, I, I would posit to you that dignity is something that's inherent, and you can't lose it, all right? What you can lose is the feeling of being dignified, okay? And whose problem is that? <laughs> that's our problem. If you're not feeling dignified, That's the problem of your community, your loved ones, because, you know, if if you've ever been in a situation where you just are feeling so beaten down and ashamed and everything, it needs the community to come around you to say, you know, we love you, we care about you, it doesn't matter whether you're useful to us or whether you're beautiful or any of those kinds of things. You need to have that community. So if you're not feeling, you know, the person isn't feeling dignified, that's our deal. You know, and of course, you know, everybody can can be quite melodramatic about it, but for the most part, in people I see and taking care of people at the end of life, if they're not feeling dignified, then this is our issue. You know, it needs to be our, our privilege to care for people, even when it's hard. Okay. Now, I don't see an eraser here. Well. Ah, yes, okay. There it is. Okay. So, any questions about this? You get the idea that it's really about control. Okay, it's about a, the sense of autonomy, the sense of control. Okay, so um, one of the things that I often say is that I think part of the reason why we got this here in Canada is that we're just too nice, you know. We want to say, "Oh well if you really want to have that, you know, it's okay, you're not hurting me, okay. So I would say to you, however, that we are just as responsible for the metaphysical environment that we leave to our children and our grandchildren as we are about the phys- for the physical environment that we leave. So if we're leaving them, <clears throat> we're leaving them a world where kids with Down syndrome are so much garbage, which today is World Down Syndrome Day, um, and uh, 321, right? Three. <laughs> so, um, and they always have a fantastic Uh, little video they do with the moms and the families and the kids on that day, so have a look at it. There's one they did um, a few years ago to that song from Twilight, about, uh, wait, I loved you for a thousand years, and they were all kind of signing it in the car, all these little ones with their moms, it was really sweet. So, anyway, um, if, if we have the kind of society that says, when you're not having fun anymore, when you have no more joy, when you can't find a place to live, when you're on the street and um, your your drug addiction has taken over you, when you're too depressed, just fill in all the blanks, then we are gonna agree with you that your life is not worth living and have state um, mechanisms to make sure that your life is gone, okay? So, That having been said, let's think a little bit about why we make laws. So why do we make laws? This is simple. Okay, so we make laws to protect or to encourage good things (laughs) and to discourage bad things, okay? So let's think about this idea of taking the life of another person by the state. So this is, um, this is something I stole from Dr. John Patrick and uh, Augustine College. So he, one of the things he likes to ask, and I think it's a really good question. So if you're reading a philosopher or you're reading about something, and you say, this is so weird, try to get behind it and say, what do you have to believe in order for this? Okay, so let's say we're making a law, we've made a law in Canada that says it's okay for the state to take the life of citizens, okay? So what do you have to believe in order for that to be a societal good? Because we've already said, we don't make laws to make things bad. We make laws because we think something's good or we wanna stop something bad from happening. So what do you have to believe to change a patient being killed, and I got in trouble one time at a meeting I was at, I said, well I don't think there's going to be very many doctors who want to kill their patients, and one of the people who was in favor of it said, oh, that's very inflammatory language. And I said, well, okay, you know, I want to play nice in the sandbox here, what am I supposed to say? They said, well, you could say take the life of it. I'm I'm not making this up, this actually happened to me. So. What, what do you have to believe in order for it to be a societal good for a doctor or a nurse practitioner to take the life of a patient? Whether or not the person asked for it. Okay, let's just assume that the person asked for it. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a lot of assumptions about that. But anyway, let's just assume that it was, it was quite voluntary. Now, what do you have to believe as a society for that to be a good? You know, that's interesting. That's one of the things that I think people do believe because I used to say in some of my talks, you know, if you think that the person's better off dead, that's kind of a faith-based statement. And I got people screaming at me to stop stuffing my religion down people's throats. And I said, Because I I would say, you know, there's no peer-reviewed study that shows that you're better off dead. And, you know, they would, and people would scream at me that I was cramming my religion. And my daughter was in med school at the time, and she said, Mom, you got to stop saying that. I said, why? You know, it's simply true. And she said, well, a lot of people just believe that you live and then you die and then there's nothing. And so you are challenging that in them. So, you know, I, I'm not defending it. I'm just telling you that, that that's one of the things. So, so maybe, maybe one of the things you do kind of have to believe is that death is the end. But a lot of people, there, there's a church in Winnipeg that brought the parishioner right into the, uh, right into the sanctuary, had a little ceremony. Um, had, the, had the, uh, the termination done there, and then everybody went into the fellowship hall and had, had refreshments afterward. And the United Church, I'm not kidding. And the United Church has written prayers for around maid. So I don't think you have to believe that death is the end, but a lot of them do. So what do you actually have to believe if you're going to say this is a good, without all the, the trappings? I'm making you think here. Well, that, that's, that's sort of a control thing, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's close to what I'm looking for. I know I'm, this is, I'm, I'm fishing for things, but stating things very starkly. Now I wouldn't go to somebody who was just kind of, well, I just don't know about this. This is really just talking to you folks who need to be thinking about this in really good ways. So the first thing you have to believe is that there are some lives not worth living. So I went and spoke to my member of parliament when this was being debated and I said to her you know I'm just really sad that in Canada we've decided that there are some lives that are not worth living and she got furious with me she said I don't believe that at all that's just not true you're putting words in my mouth and I said look if the state is regulating it paying for it deciding <laughs> which lives are worth living and which are not. You know, you're not just giving it, like there, there is a group of people in the world who would like you to be able to go into a death emporium and just take a kit off the wall and without any, um, any uh, restrictions on it. So that's coming. That's one of the things that they, they've, they've had. And in, in the Netherlands at the moment, Even the Royal Dutch Medical Society is saying that if you're 70 years old, which I am, and you're tired of life, then that should be enough of a reason for you to um, just have have the state take your life. Okay, so you, you, because what we have is we have a double standard about suicide. If you're a 25 year old, if you're that 25 year old whose girlfriend just dumped you, and you say you're going to kill yourself, We commit you, (laughs) we don't, you know, we we say you're a danger to yourself if you do that. Um, And this is so ambiguous that after the law came in, the Quebec Minister of Health, who probably hated to have to do this because he supported, he supported medical termination, had to send a, a notice out to all the emergency room physicians in Quebec saying that if somebody comes in who's attempted suicide, do resuscitate them. It doesn't mean they've decided that they want to be dead, necessarily. So, I mean, I'm laughing at that, but it's just, it's so ridiculously sad that that this is what we have. So you actually have to believe this, or you would be preventing all these people from doing it. You have to believe that even if somebody is in the last few moments of their life, uh, the last few weeks of their life, that there's still something that's rich there that we can have from one another, even if the person is comatose, that we as a society get something out of caring for that person that we, we are a different kind of people if we care for each other than if we kill each other. Okay, so you have to believe that some lives are not worth living. Um, this one you probably won't get, but it's, it's kind of obvious. You have to believe that it's it's okay, it's okay to kill, all right, um, without, without self-defense. We've had, up until this, we had this bright line that said, outside of self-defense, it's not okay for one member of the human family to take the life of another. And we'll leave war aside. But you know, just in everyday life, it's not okay. And even in self-defense, it can only be reasonable. You know, you're not allowed to wait for a guy to sneak in your, your back gate to steal your geraniums and blast him with a shotgun and kill him. You know, you can be charged for that, even though he's on your property and you felt threatened and all of that kind of thing. But we have now said that it's okay that one member of the human family can take the life of another. And the last thing you have to believe, I'll give you this one too, is that at least in some cases, and I'm stating this very starkly, I wouldn't say it if I'm giving an, you know, um, an interview to the CBC, um, killing is better than caring. Okay, that, that if the person wants it, you know, whatever you wanna put in there, you're still saying at some point, if you think this is a good and you don't say it, you don't pass a law to do all these things with it if you don't think it's a good, right? All these people who argued for it, who wanted, who wanted uh, Gloria Taylor to have that extra couple months of her life um, thought this was better, you know, because maybe she didn't want to be cared for. So this was all about autonomy. Okay. So this is pretty stark, but I started doing this because I thought people don't don't really get (laughs) what, what we're talking about with this, as to what what it actually means. It means that we are saying these things, and you know the interesting thing about this for all those people who are addicted to autonomy is that they don't get to decide if their life is worth living or not. Right? It's all whether or not it fill fill if you fulfill the criteria right And now with the with no waiting time, they took away the having two um, dispassionate witnesses and now you only have to have one witness to, to have your signature and you also um, it can be somebody who's a paid caregiver to you. So you know there's <laughs> and it can be someone who stands to benefit from your death. So there's there's a lot of stuff there that you know, we wouldn't buy swampland <laughs> that was, that was uh, so poorly dealt with. And the other the other thing that's really distressing about this is that after the Supreme Court decision and we knew the law was coming in, there was a very, very wide coalition of groups called the Vulnerable, that came together to make what's called the Vulnerable Persons Standard. And Catherine Frazee, who's one of the top disability rights activists in Canada, um, she's very articulate she headed it up with Michael Bach and, and so as groups as different as the Christian Medical and Dental Society that is now an association that I'm part of and, um, and then other disability rights groups you know people groups that actually thought that it would be okay in some cases and other groups like ours that didn't want to see it at all we all came together and said we can agree on this vulnerable person standard and the Trudeau government just Thumb of their noses and said no, we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to know about it. It was all laid out there for them with data, with studies from other other jurisdictions, everything. So if you're interested in what some of those things might have been, you can go to the Vulnerable Persons Standard and you can have a look at that. Okay, so let's just think a little bit now about autonomy. So." The, people love to talk about autonomy and um, you've, you've probably also heard about this they call it the Georgetown mantra but it's so have you heard about those things so there's there's um, okay so there's autonomy and there's beneficence which means doing good I'm not sure I'm spelling these things right and non-mal, don't quote me on the spelling, and justice, okay? Now, these things are, that's called the Georgetown mantra. These guys from Georgetown University came up with this. Um, It's, what we have done is these things actually are all interlocking, okay? You really can't have justice, this is a non Non malfeasance. Okay. Um, you can't really have justice if people don't have the autonomy to make their own decisions. Okay. You can't have justice if you if you're not doing good things. So but there's but what, what our society has done is we've singled out autonomy and said autonomy trumps everything else. It doesn't matter about justice, <laughs> like those those poor those poor soldiers who were who fought for their country and then were told well maybe you should choose maid. You know, that's not just, (laughs) it doesn't matter about beneficence or non-malfeasance for the poor woman who had environmental sensitivities, you know, you can't just have autonomy. So tell me some of the ways that we already accept having our autonomy curtailed. Are you completely autonomous? Okay, so how, how are some of the ways? Limits. Yeah. yeah. What else? Can I have a nuclear reactor in my backyard if I want it? Can I put weed killer on my lawn? Not that I don't have a lawn, but you know, in Vancouver you're not allowed to smoke a cigarette outdoors on a public beach. Okay, that's the kind of limits that we have to our autonomy. But it's okay to say, I'm going to poison the metaphysical environment by having complete open season on people who are vulnerable, basically, by having medical termination in our society. And oh, but you can't get in the way of the person's autonomy. But this is, you, this is what's, what's out there. Have you not heard this? I mean this is the way that this is the way that that it goes is we this is what we see. It's <laughs> yeah. Like that's not time. I know. Well, that's because of how we look at things. So, you know, ideas matter and bad ideas have victims. Okay? And this there's an interesting some of the folks in Oregon when they were talking about this said that the people that who were agitating to have assisted suicide in Oregon tended to be white, wealthy, worried, and well. They were not people who were living on the margins, who knew all too well about how tenuous uh, their life was and how little their society thought about them. And it's rather interesting, I, (laughs) I ended up on the board the National Board for the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians. And I'd been a little bit, you know, nervous about, you know, was our society kind of going a little more, you know, just being accepting of all of this, because a lot of medical people have just kind of gone in wholeheartedly to this, which is, has given, given me a lot to lament about, I have to say. you know, I worked very hard at the beginning of palliative care, saying, no, no, we're not Jack Kevorkian, we're not trying to hasten your death, and now the, all the, the administrators have shoved the, the medical termination in the same basket as palliative care. In fact, when it came to the hospitals in, in British Columbia, we weren't even allowed to transfer the, the patient Outside of the palliative care unit, to a room around the corner, because that was cons- to, in order for it to happen, because that was considered disrespectful to the patient. Whereas, if somebody no longer wants um, wants uh, intensive care, they don't get to stay in the intensive care unit just because they like their nurses. Or if somebody no longer wants dialysis, they don't stay with the in the dialysis unit until um, until they're not until they die. But oh no, you know you couldn't move the person around the corner, and it's not like the bed's going to be blocked. You, <laughs> you know, you know what's going to happen. But oh no, no, and I think if if you um, one of the books that you may be reading, I don't know, but it's it's kind of a um, it's kind of a uh, an idea a, a presentation of the idea of natural law by an author called Jay Budziszewski and it's called What We Can't Not Know. And he, I think that some of what's happened with these things is that there is a part of the folks who are making these regulations that is, they can't not know. <laughs> and I don't think it's, it's, for most of them, it's not really conscious. But they want everybody to be involved. You know, they don't want anybody holding up you know we talk about in drama that you hold up a foil it's like a mirror to to what the bad character the good character holds up this foil so we don't want anybody there who can show that there's a different way that this could be done that there's some there's some good that could come in this we just want everybody to drink the kool-aid everybody to be on board in my opinion everybody to have blood on his hands And I think some of them have very good intentions. I don't mean that, uh, but I don't mean that they wouldn't. And in fact, um, you know, there's lots of people through the world in in world history who have said, you know, protect me from the good intentions of my fellow man, because that tends to be where the worst things happen. Um, If you uh, ever want to see something, and, and I know that it's controversial to talk about the Nazis, but one of my colleagues in the United States, who's a psychiatrist by the name of Mark Comrad, K-O-M-R-A-D, he did grand rounds uh, for psychiatry at Yale University and he talked about the Nazi doctors. And I always, I knew that the Nazi doctors were involved with eugenics and all of these things, but until I watched Mark's presentation, I had no idea that it wasn't just these kind of you know coborkian sideline guys it was the heads of psychiatry and it was the heads of universities this was very mainstream what they were doing and they were rounding up children in the neighborhoods who had disabilities and and there there are pictures of the nurses celebrating the fact that they're bringing these children in to get rid of them because you know they're useless eaters, they called them. So, to this idea that, well, it couldn't happen to us. We're not like that. You know, there, there is something in each of us, uh, Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And I think, um, that's really worth thinking about with this. And the same thing, G.K. Chesterton, when they asked him to write about what's wrong with the world, I think it was the Times or somebody in New, in uh, London, he wrote, wrote back and said, gentlemen, I am, and signed it. <laughs> and so, and he, so he wrote the Father Brown Mysteries, <clears throat> And he was this very jolly, lovely Catholic man, and everyone said to him, how do you think up all these things? And he said, I had to look no further than the blackness of my own heart. So I understand that. And to be honest, I have a real uh, sense of humility about understanding what the good is in this, because I could easily see being a person who is concerned for people who are vulnerable. That if I didn't understand that everyone was made in the image of God, and that the Holy Spirit hadn't gotten hold of me, (laughs) that I could easily be a zealot on the other side of this. And that when I see Jesus face to face, instead of being able to run up the front steps, that I'd be shinnying up the downspout at the back if I was lucky enough to get in. You know, I think there are some people who are working really hard to make this a reality all across the country. There's a petition that the Dying with Dignity people right now are asking doctors to sign to say that Vancouver Coastal Health should not transfer patients to faith-based hospices because they won't be able to get made there. You know, what if you don't want it? You know, (laughs) What what if you don't want your last day to be your worst your worst day to be your last day what if you want to be protected against yourself you know but that's uh, i i just feel like uh, for some of those folks who are the are pushing really hard on this that um i could have been them you know there but for the grace of god and they're going to have a moment when they stand before the lord jesus and realize that all the influence, the intellect, the time, the talents that they had were used for 180 degrees the wrong things. And I'm hopefully not going to have that. And I feel very grateful, but also very humble, that I know that it would be really easy to get off the rails on this because we think we know what's best. And there's the, the verse that says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but at the end of it leads to death. And I think that's certainly what we've had with,
0: with this. So, Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on made and the Christian worldview. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Prolium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. And we're also on Facebook and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again. Take care.